Welcome to the Hustle Up podcast, the podcast that shares the unique stories of startups, side hustles, and the self-employed. I'm your host, Josh Burrell. In today's episode, I'm joined by Albert Aziz Clawson, the CEO and co-founder of Underpin, a platform that helps freelancers build their businesses. Welcome, Albert. Hey, thank you very much for having me. No worries. It's great to chat to you finally. So how would you describe yourself? Are you the CEO, co-founder? You know, a, w- a weird thing happened recently where I dropped the uh, the co-founder bit and like the business is now nearly three years old. So uh, in fact, it will be three years old on the 6th of August. And so I kind of got to a point where I was like, actually, I think that I'm, I'm no longer just a co-founder of Sasa, like I'm running it. Like the CEO is the main bit. So now it's just CEO of Underpin, so I go by. Brilliant. And how would you describe Underpin for those that don't know what you guys do? The simplest way of describing it is Underpin helps people, mostly at the early stages of their freelance careers, learn how to freelance and then gives them all the tools they need to successfully actually start freelancing. So the focus is on education, community and technology. So we have courses that teach people how to freelance. We give them all the technology tools from invoicing, contracts, project management, CRM management, lead generation in one software suite called a virtual office and then access to a community of tens of thousands of other freelancers hopefully hundreds of thousands um for christmas this year um but it's kind of like a one-stop shop to go and build a business around your craft brilliant no that sounds really really interesting and i always like to take it back to the start so how was life for you growing up with like your family whereabouts did you grow up and what were you into my life was pretty, pretty strange because I grew up as a ballet dancer. So I was doing kind of like from the age of about five, doing like 10 hours of ballet a week. <laughs> and my family were, I have three brothers. We're all super close. We're still super close. Uh, although one of them lives in Australia, which is a great shame. We miss him dearly. Hopefully he'll come back soon. If they let him. <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, it's excuse after excuse with him, but he's been there for too long for, it to, for the excuse to continue. He's got to come back and we miss him. We're all very close. I was doing a lot of ballet and I think like, Actually, one of the things that spurred me into what I do now is my both my parents are very into education, support systems, how to kind of help. I think the thing that always struck me was like a real interest in my family about access to opportunity. Yeah. Like my my parents uh, both ended up working in the kind of alternative provision schooling systems um, and helping building them. And I was always really interested by the the kind of ideas behind how to give people access to education and opportunity and how you can create better systems for inclusion by doing these things. But broadly speaking, I was like an absolute nutcase of a kid. Like I was incredibly hyperactive, wore the most ridiculous clothing. And I think there was like a sense of being a ballet dancer growing up as like a young boy in like the city, you know, people don't know what ballet is. And like you grew up with a lot of people saying lots of things and, and you don't get to do any of the normal sports as well. And I think my response to that was just to be like, completely extra like you can't shut me down like, I'm here I'm here to stay yeah. <laughs> and in terms of the ballet itself were you were you really into that was that your your life goal did you see yourself going down the ballet route yeah so like I started it me and all my brothers did ballet and it was just a really inconsequential thing when we started my mum and dad which is just thought it would be a nice thing to do when we were really little kids and we were like two or three because beautiful classical music learn how to coordinate and use your body clumsy toddler boys I imagine are an absolute nightmare so like giving them anything that might mean they might not lock over more vases so that was that was the only reason we started and then all my brothers stopped and I kind of initially just didn't really realize I could stop and then I think when I was about five years old I went to see 
Darcy Bustle at like a local sports club and the two male dancers with her. Um, Darcy Bustle has become a bit of a pop icon, I feel like, actually. Yeah. Um, and this was like when she was, yeah, like I, I went to go watch her and I thought it was amazing. And I remember seeing like these two male dancers she was dancing with. And I remember turning to my dad and just being like, I want to do that. Like, I want to do that. That's what I'm going to do. And that was it. Like, I just kept dancing. And then when I was about 10 years old, they also wanted to be in Billy Elliot, the stage performance. And my ballet teacher was like, look, you've got kind of two options now. You can either go down the road of doing that kind of musical theater, um, or you can stick to your like very classical dance route and go to the Royal Ballet. And I hadn't really heard of what that was before. I hadn't really, I kind of just did ballet. I didn't really, and I went to go watch ballet, but it wasn't something that was, I don't know. It wasn't something that I would have been, would have thought of myself as a nerd about. And I feel like that's usually what it is when you're really into something like quite nerd about. It. And I really wasn't at the time. I'd probably say I'm more of a ballet nerd now. And I just decided like, I really wanted to go and do this classical ballet thing. Like that's what I wanted to do. And I only applied to one school when I was 11. And that was the Royal Ballet School. Luckily I got in, but thank yeah. God I didn't go to do uh, Billy Elliot because I am about as bad at singing as can possibly be to the point where I was asked to mime in my full school choir. So like, very lucky I avoided that. <laughs> so there is something you can't do then. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Singing is out. <laughs> Man of many talents. I'm sure it was pretty intense at the ballet school though. So what was your your experience like when you were actually there? It is really intense, but I think it's one of those things that's probably true of like lots of people who do sports or or music or any kind of like extracurricular activity at like a high level because you don't realize it's weird while you're doing it like I was doing four to six hours of ballet a day sometimes more plus four hours of academics plus like stretching and homework and stuff and it never occurred to me that it was strange because it was just what I always did I guess the one thing that kind of struck me is I didn't have many friends who were not doing it because it was so intense it wasn't much time to be outside of that world which meant i got very into video games on school holidays <laughs> uh, and i was in the very the first wave of when like gaming was starting to be professionalized and starting to go on youtube and like making a youtube channel with my mate and starting to make money out of gaming while i was away from ballet and then going back to be oh, a wow. ballet dancer but it was it was a quite intense experience but it was i wasn't aware of how intense it was i think the intensity of ballet is very much what then spurred me to have the level of intensity and I guess discipline, but that's not the way I would describe it. It's more, intensity is a better way of describing it. Like my attitude towards things is quite intense. I get very excited and passionate and enthused and like won't stop until it's done kind of thing. And I feel like that came from ballet because I was so used to being around it. When I've had my first day at normal school, a normal boys comprehensive school, I turned up and I was like, this can't be your whole day. This can't be, this can't be all that's required of you. Like nine till three, are you joking? And like, oh, it's just, it's just moseying about with your mates all day and like learning a little bit. Like this cannot be what a full day is. And so it just meant that I just threw myself into absolutely anything I could get my hands on. And yeah. when I did something, I destroyed my body with, with sports just because anything I could touch, I wanted to do it a hundred percent. That's awesome. What other sports did you get into? I mean, the list is almost endless. Like on the athletics, I did like sprinting, middle distance, high jump, long jump, pole vault. Uh, I did hammer for a bit. Uh, I did some javelin. I did football, which I was terrible at. So <laughs> cut that short. Uh, I feel like every other kid has spent their whole life playing football. And I was starting for the first time at 16. Okay. Uh, I did quite a lot of rugby. It was known as twinkle toes during my school rugby years. Lots of rock climbing, parkour, cycling 
cycling, swimming. I mean, literally everything. Circus, like literally anything I could try, I did. Like CrossFit, rowing, uh, boxing, jujitsu, kung fu, MMA, kickboxing. <laughs> like literally any sport I could try, I was on it. The Olympics is for you. Maybe yeah. you should be out in Tokyo at the moment. Uh, I'd be the guy just doing everything quite badly, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I, and I just loved throwing myself into that. But it wasn't even. It wasn't just sports. It was like academics as well. I started reading things and traveling and starting to try new foods and like and and I loved academics and I loved throwing myself like I'd be I, I'm terrible at music but we'd just be sitting in the music tech room like for hours and ends just being like I've never been able to try this before I'm just going to do this for like 10 hours yeah straight. why not and I love that like I love just like throwing myself into things and just doing it really intensely for a while <laughs> and what made you want to change pathway so you went to UCL was it for university what did you study there what was the experience like at uni yeah so I studied philosophy of science and it was the only degree that I applied to actually and the only university I applied to um, because I was really passionate about philosophy but I kind of preferred things that were a bit more practically applicable so I really really enjoyed computer science and maths and, and economics and I wanted to get that and physics and I wanted to get that kind of content but attach it to something that was a bit more verbal and linguistic. Yeah. And so that's why I ended up finding this philosophy of science degree, because originally I looked at philosophy and like focusing on logic and tying into computer science. And then I looked at like math and was like, that's probably a bit much for me to be honest. And then I found this degree. And I think it was like, for me, it was the perfect combination of, I get to do the kind of philosophical, linguistic, explanatory, interesting argument formation stuff that I loved but I also got to do this like logic and like uh, logic-based linguistics and and like methodology behind science and like how scientific theories were developed and like history of knowledge and like starting to look at the the points post philosophy and science splitting as like separate subjects and and how science started to develop after that and like the involvement of mass and then looking at like Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell and like looking into like logic and like how that tied to computer science and then I found computer science interesting and I wanted to start looking at that more and that was kind of I started like getting all these different insights. And then at the same time, doing philosophy of science, you're also able to look at things like science policy and look at like, I did even did like a science journalism module. And so there was loads of different things you could tie into the central subject of science. Because obviously, if you look at the history of ideas, like the history of science is like 100 years. Uh, yeah. but, the history, <laughs> but the history of ideas is a bit longer. And so what you're actually doing is you're starting to look like this long history of foundations for modern ideas and then how these ideas started to evolve into a, a tree with all these different branches that became all these different disciplines. And this course allowed you to explore all of those branches um, while still having like a really clear central thesis. And that's, I think, what I really loved about it. Okay. And did you did you live at home? What was the social side like? Because it sounds like you were quite studious, but were you uh, in London partying as well? I, yeah. So I, I, I was, I'm from London, born and bred. I've never left London for longer than six months. Um, and you know what? I may never. But I, I wouldn't describe myself as studious at university. I, I definitely was hardworking, but probably not yeah. so much on the uni stuff. I found like, when I first went to uni, I was really excited about that step up from A-levels where you get to start actually exploring ideas and very quickly yeah. realized that that's just not true at undergraduate. Like <laughs> the truth of it is like 
you understand how the system works and you understand what you need to learn and how you need to structure it, you can bang things out like relatively simply. I mean, that sounds like quite an arrogant way of putting it, but I guess what I mean is there wasn't as much of the kind of exploration of ideas as I thought there would be. So I ended up doing a lot of side projects that I was really interested in around my topic. But I ended up spending most of my time working. So I worked as a freelance public relations consultant where I started to develop a business strategy consultancy off the back of it because the thing that annoyed me most about public relations is I couldn't tell the businesses what to do. <laughs> I could tell them <laughs> I could tell them how to talk about what they were doing better, but I couldn't tell them what to do. Yeah. And then I, I ran a media and arts company that helped young and emerging artists. And I founded an arts charity which helped uh, disadvantaged and at-risk children with creative workshops to help solve real-life problems. Um, I worked doing all this consultancy brought me to all these different places. I put CEO in one of my titles so that I could go and talk to people I had no right to go and talk to. Um, my attendance at university was pretty appalling and at UCL they have really strict rules. So I got really good at taking flowers and chocolates to the administrative office <laughs> and being really charming to all the people there. Um, my parents were having a bit of a tough time at the time with health. My mum was very ill. So it was kind of like an extension of that to be like, oh, I'm sorry, I've not been around, but here's some flowers and you know, I'm doing well and we're all friends. And But I just spent my time like just doing as much stuff as possible. And I think the one yeah. thing I loved about being in London was that I got to basically be three years ahead of all my mates coming back from other universities. Like by the time I finished university, I mean, I started underpinned two months before I graduated and I had the first 250K in investment the month I graduated. So like I was I, I was able to get well ahead of the curve by doing that. And don't get me wrong, I love to party. I and mean, we did lots of partying while I was in London. But like <laughs> I love to work hard too. And I, I didn't want to be, I would always be the first person to leave the party because I'd be like, get to midnight, one o'clock. I'd be like, bedtime, mate. Like I want to be up. I want to be doing stuff tomorrow. So that was kind of my uni experience. Oh, that sounds sick. Um, I was gonna, you've kind of touched on some of the other things you did. I was gonna ask if you've always been quite entrepreneurial. Um, but it sounds like with the charities and some of the other businesses. Yeah, I used to just love just doing that stuff. Like I, I, went, I went to India and I started like an Indian shirt company, which, you know, just because I, I, I love doing that kind of stuff. I think the thing that I really enjoyed about the, the whole concept behind entrepreneurism is A, I don't think I'm particularly good at doing what I'm told. <laughs> and I like to move fast. And like, I like to, yeah. I'm good at working within frameworks and I love criticism. Like criticism is a gift. I love being told that I'm wrong and I love criticism and I love people saying that things aren't good enough. But I didn't like just to be like, to fit within a structure of work. I wanted to be able to be a bit more creative in how I develop things. So that was one thing. And the other thing is like, you could just kind of do what you want. The, the problem solving side of it is endlessly interesting. Like you cannot get bored with constantly being thrown new problems. You can get emotionally exhausted, but you can't, yeah. you can't get bored of it. Like it's always interesting and exciting. And that's why like everything I look at is a, is a set of puzzles that I can try and solve. Yeah, a lot of challenges. I was going to try and take it back to the very start. So you said you, you started underpinned two months before you graduated. How did you come up with the concept? How did you come up with the name? Like, what was the starting gun for yeah, it? Yeah, so it all started um, when... So, like, in the media and arts company, the whole premise of it was to help young and emerging artists establish themselves. So, by and large, young and emerging artists face quite big difficulty in commercializing their work slash making enough money from their work to support themselves. So the whole purpose was how can we help people do this? Now we threw lots of events and exhibitions and art parties. Like I ran a freaking building in Soho for like one of the years I was at uni, which was the dopest place wow. to throw parties. <laughs> Good throw <laughs> Jamie XX did his birthday party there. Like it was a wild place, but but the 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 that was kind of all on the side. The main bit of it that was really exciting 
in terms of underpinning was helping people build these businesses around what they were doing. Now, for some people, that meant teaching them how to commercialize the art they were already making. But for most people, it ended up being lots of young artists are not willing to kind of sacrifice what they do as art in order to commercialize it, which I think makes a lot of sense because they're developing their ideas, et cetera, et cetera. So what it meant instead was saying, here's how you can commercialize your skills to support your artwork while you're developing. So instead of working in a coffee shop, you can commercialize your design skills with PR companies who are doing pitches all the time or with startups who need to do presentations or whatever else it is. And you can use that money to support your, um, to support your, your art. So that's where like, that's where this first kind of thing started. Like I was already doing this thing, helping creatives build businesses out of what they were doing, but it was very, very ad hoc. It was very much one-to-one consultation. And then I started working with like designers and illustrators and poets and one-on-one, I was basically just teaching people how to build freelance businesses. And eventually I was sitting down with like consultants and then an accountant. And I was like, of all the people you think know how to build a freelance business, an accountant is surely that person. And they they didn't. And I realized that like, no one has ever left education of any format realistically, even if you went to business school or has left employment knowing how to build a freelance business. People go out and they don't know what to do. They fumble around for a while, like they make lots of mistakes, lots of trial and error, a lot of people fail. And then a few people become successful because they manage to get through this like three to five year fumbling process and maybe they have some support from elsewhere. And to make things even worse, none of the software companies, like none of the cool startups that I loved were helping freelancers. Like there were some finance companies doing accounting and there were some companies doing recruitment, which was largely insipid. And then there was like all these amazing SaaS products for, for SMEs, like, you know, the big names like MailChimp and Squarespace and Wix and like all these guys, you know, kind of Trello and all these people who are like helping build systems for SMEs who have different departments, but no one was yeah. helping freelancers. So what you had was, a massive and growing number of established freelancers, but a far, far bigger number of people who wanted to do it and just had no idea or were falling off along the way. And the whole purpose behind Underpin was, how can we create a scalable system, like an actual framework that means if you're a PR consultant or an illustrator, you can go, I need to build a business around this to be successful. How on earth do I do that? Underpin will literally tell you exactly how to do it and then give you the tools to enact what we've just told you. And that's, that's, that's kind of where the seed came, as it were. Um, and then the name, oh man, we sat, me and my business partner sat for hours and hours going through such stupid names. I wish we still had those lists. His favorite remains to this day, the unknown university. I don't even know what that means. Um, every time <laughs> we're naming something, he brings it up. But then underpinned, I think I said underpin and he said underpinned. And I was like, that's perfect. Cause, but underpinning is the process of basically building a foundation support for a house, right? Yeah. And that was perfect for us. It's like, we are the foundation of your freelance career. Like you build your amazing creative house, we'll give you everything you need to support it. And it just fits so well. And it was one of those things where I really don't think we'll ever change the name. Like maybe we will, who knows? But like, I believe in like, it's a great name and it embodies exactly what we're trying to do. Build a support platform for anyone to come and build their house. Yeah, I actually love the name and I was going to mention this later, but you've actually got the logo tattooed on yourself, haven't you? So let's hope you don't change it anytime yeah, soon. I've got it tattooed on myself three months after starting Underpin when we were one month from running out of money. <laughs> Me and my business partner, he's got it as well. We got it. Was that a, a big decision or was it something you kind of did off the fly? Uh, I'm a fairly, I don't, I'm not very precious about things like tattoos. So it wasn't like a massive decision. I have my last company's logo tattooed on my neck. <laughs> but at the same time, 
it was something for me and him when we we like we'd got our first investment in it was a terrifying beginning to the journey but this was something we both believed in 100 and and this is why like in the early stages people are asking me investors saying like what's your exit plan like where do you make your money it's like i started this without much knowledge of the startup world and now i help other people build startups but when i started it was it was purely like we know hundreds if not thousands of these people and we know exactly how to help them like why would we not build that thing um and so getting the logo tattooed was much more like hey man like this is something that we both love and means a huge amount to us and we'll probably like if it failed it two months later would always have been a significant moment in our lives um definitely and so i think it was it was actually a fairly easy decision what other tattoos have you got Oh, all sorts. I got my favorite cocktail. I got a Negroni. I've got a snake down my hand onto my finger. I've got my two family like uh, signets on my arms. I've got like my old logo on my neck. I've got a line down my spine. I've got ooh, a ballet dancer on my left side. The like philosophy of science tattoo on my right side. It's like two fingers crossing with like space shit around it. I've got uh, the fall of Icarus on my chest. Um, any regret or do they all kind of have <laughs> some was sort one. of meaning? I had a, no, none of them have any meaning. Well, like they have like some like meaning in passing. They don't have any real meaning. Yeah. Like I don't, I don't, I don't look at them as like things that mean anything. I have a, a, a frog, a boxing frog on my, on my calf that I call Barney Rubble. And uh, I basically was really hungover slash still pretty drunk at brunch and walked past tattoo parlor with a friend. And she was like, I've always wanted to get a tattoo. And I was like, let's get one now. And she's like, we're really drunk. And I was like, who cares? Let's get a tattoo. <laughs> um, and I walked in and I was like, this one's on sale. I'm going to get this one. <laughs> and I ended up just buying the only one that was on sale, uh, which, you know, upon reflection is probably not the one people are choosing. But uh, to be honest, now I love it. I, for, for the first few days, I was like, God damn, that's a lovely tattoo. But now, now I absolutely love it. What did your friend go for? She, well, she had clearly, like, I feel, I felt a bit duped because she had wanted a tattoo, like a very specific tattoo that she had a picture uh, of. She played it all yeah, out. Mate, like, it was, <laughs> I was a total ruse. I was done. <laughs> <laughs> I nearly got a matching one with her, which my girlfriend at the time was very much not happy about. So that was probably lucky that I didn't do that because that probably would have been yes. regretted. <laughs> you dodged a bullet. Yeah. I was going to ask in terms of your co-founder. So you've mentioned them a few times. So who, who are they? What's the split of responsibilities like? And I assume you work really closely together. Uh, Jack Williams, my absolute rock. We, I recently posted a great picture of the two of us, like a kind of pretend post-marriage picture of the two of us. Uh, I, saw, <laughs> I saw that, actually. I saw that. It's so good. Uh, Jack is my absolute rock. So Jack is like, um, he's kind of the exact opposite to me in so many ways. We're very similar in terms of our beliefs and our ideologies and like our ethos. Um, but he's, I'm like crazy i guess kind of eccentric pretty impassioned um ridiculous one and he's like sensible down to earth loves hr <laughs> like wow I, but, but he's also like the most creative and most like engaging person when it comes to literature writing and like artistic stuff and like i have never in my life met anyone as well read and as well engaged with the kind of intellectual and creative world of, of writing and, and and illustration as he is and so when we started the business it was like initially like the seed of it was my idea and I immediately went to him because he was working with me previously and said I need you for this like if there's anyone that's going to do this to me it's going to be you can we see if this thing is a real thing like can we flesh it out together and over the course of a bunch of coffees and and, and hanging out and beers and he just like it just made complete sense and the big thing for me was 
he is this amazing creative input to underpinned but he's also like super steady so whereas i was kind of running around doing all this the business financial tech side of things and also just being kind of crazy he would always be the one to like a slow me down and make sure things were on the right track like actually and also he's the reason that underpin created this creative engaging empathetic brand that people actually identify with and love um, and I could never have done that without him. The other big role that he's played is is in content. So freelancers are not particularly homogenous. Like they're a very disparate group in many different professions, in many different industries, in many different age groups, in many different cultures. And so creating a unified platform for such a disparate group is a big challenge. And whereas lots of companies will pay to be placed in media, we kind of took the exact opposite approach and were like, let's build our own media hub. Like let's build our own PR system. And so he was solely responsible for building that. And it was incredibly successful. It's genius. Yeah. I mean, like the way that I explain it now, which is a completely ad hoc way of doing it, is like when Red Bull, when Red Bull were like, why would we pay to be on the back cover of a magazine when we can own the car on the front cover? It's like, why would we pay to have an article in a magazine when we can own the magazine that is like the center of the freelance economy? And that's the kind of approach we took to it. Um, and it worked. Like it got within three months, we had companies like, the head of companies like Fiverr coming to us and having conversations with us when we were three months old and like 20, 21, 22, whatever old I was, like doing this startup thing. And that was because of his content. And that's why I think we worked so to get well together. And our roles have changed a lot over the time. Um, he like runs a lot of the HR and like a big part of that for him is he wants, we both are being involved in every part of the company, but because that's easy for me because I'm running everything, but because he's in the kind of content and, and does a lot of the marketing side of stuff and the creative side of stuff, um, partnerships and things, he didn't get to be involved in every part of it. And like, he then kind of found this love of, of helping people develop themselves, which makes sense. Cause that's what we do for yeah. freelancers, but he wanted to do it for people within the team. And now he gets to kind of touch every part of underpinned by being the person that, takes so much pride in making sure people's careers are fulfilling within underpinned and that's pretty fucking cool that's awesome you mentioned your team so hr side of things how many people are uh, working in underpinned at the moment currently it's 13 in-house and then there's like a periphery of lawyers and accountants and illustrators and journalists and copywriters and uh, marketing support consultants and it's probably like a sphere of around 30 35 people that are kind of consistently okay. evolved in underpin in some way uh, but yeah 13 in our core team will be growing quite significantly i imagine over the next year year and a half so you mentioned growth just then and i know that you guys had a crowdfunder uh, a little while ago and you raised sort of more than half a million pounds in three weeks what made you want to go down the crowdfunding route so it's actually the second time we've done it and we did okay. 500k the first time this time we did a little over 600k and i think in total we've raised around 2.4 million and it actually literally finished like the week before last like it's literally just just done there's like a number of factors like the first time we did crowdfunding was very much about getting our community involved the second time we did crowdfunding if i'm completely honest was a little bit more cynically around like making a bit of noise around our our raise um yeah. and letting small the other big thing about it's just letting smaller investors like the second time was not as much about community investors the first time if i'm honest like largely because post-covid not even post-COVID, really. <laughs> I'd love it to be post-COVID. Um, 
it's pretty insensitive to ask our community who are early stage freelancers to like give us money to help them, especially when they'd be investing similar amounts via our platform to help themselves. Like I'd rather they put that money into themselves. Um, And so it it wasn't as much this time around asking our, our community for money, although lots of them did end up getting involved. It was a lot more about like, it's very hard as a startup to create a diverse and interesting investment pool because by and large, most of the people that invest in early stage companies are middle to older, middle-aged to older white men. Like, cause they're the people that made their money in the eighties and nineties. Right. Yeah. And so like find, branching out from that is difficult. And the best way of doing that is reducing the amount of money you need to take. Because if your minimum ticket is 200 K you are limited to like people that made money pre pre 21st century, like largely speaking, if you can take 10 to 20 K suddenly you open up yourself to a whole new generation of potential investors. If you could take less than that, even more so. So a big emphasis of it for me was like a big, big part of a big thing behind underpin, a big thing behind most of the things I do is around um, inclusion, access, but most importantly, opportunity, like access to opportunity. Um, and equality of opportunity, like I believe is like the fundamental foundation of, 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 of diversity and, and equality as a whole. Um, and that starts with getting people to t- be involved and getting people to be in a position where they can have a conversation and say things and be part of something. And Most if, if, if investment is only accessible by people who can put in 200K, then it's inaccessible to all of the people that you're trying to include. And so a big thing, the biggest driver for me around crowdfunding was how can we get more women investing? Like, how can we get more people from like um, different backgrounds investing? I don't care how much they're investing. What I care is that their name's on our cap table and that they're part of what we're doing and that they get to be a voice in what the future of Underpinned is. In an ideal world, I'd want like a fully um, democratic format for investment and like, you know, in the future, maybe there's possibility to go down various different legal structures of how you set up your company. But a big, big emphasis for me was if I meet an amazing woman at like an investment event and she wants to invest 5K, I want her to invest 5K and I want to give her the capacity and ability yeah. to invest 5K. I don't want to say to her, I'm really sorry, but we accept 100K minimum. So that was like a really big driver for me. And it meant we got a whole tranche of interesting people involved that otherwise we'd never been able to access. That's brilliant. And you mentioned the pandemic as well. So how's that been for underpinned, but also for the freelancers you support? It's like a really weird bittersweet in that, so many people have been so negatively affected from our community, from the startup community, from, I mean, literally there's no one that's not really been badly affected. Jeff Bezos maybe, but the (laughs) the point, so that was, that was very difficult. And we made a real point of making the period for us around support. Like we are lucky enough to have fantastic financial backers. We believe in the project 100%. Like, we're not, we weren't going to run out of money. And I was fairly confident of that. I mean, I'm not saying it did involve a mad amount of hustle, but had a lot yeah. of crying into my hands for many months. But like, I was fairly confident I could hold together the financial side. So the other side was much more like, how can we support these people? And we, di- I think we did a really good job. We had grants and we did lots of free educational stuff and help people connect and build community. And some of it's just about making sure people have people to talk to and working with universities and government and various bits and bobs. But the other side of it, putting aside the kind of anecdotal experience of how people experience COVID and how difficult that was, the broader economic change globally is like underpins golden ticket in many ways. And there's kind of the two sides to it are businesses are hiring freelancers more than they've ever done. There was 40% increase in job listing for freelancers in 2020 alone. Like that's a mad, mad statistic. But, but if you look into why that happened, what you see is like companies furloughing people, 
but then still needing to fulfill a lot of those people's tasks. So response, I'll hire someone specialized at the specific task. Oh my God, if I hire someone specialized at a specific task, they're really good at it and they're cheaper long-term than having somebody that does all these different things all year round. And I saw this trend starting in the creative agency world about 10 years ago, where creative agencies, you don't hire a creative agency for like the junior people, you hire them for the three directors, right? Because they've done 25 years of whatever. And so why on earth would they hire a full staff of juniors? Like let's hire the people that are right for each project. And it started to happen in the creative agency world quite a lot. And now it's starting to happen all over the place, like everywhere, like startups. Yeah. Uh, so like um, even in like PR and consulting and, and product development and like tech, like people are starting to realize that hiring specialists is a great way of building a business. And most things can be broken down into projects. So you have like the increase of communication technology, you have the mass adoption of electronic communication, and you have this realization that's built out of a necessity that, that hiring freelance workers is a super efficient format of working. On the other side of things, you have freelancers who are, or or aspiring freelancers. You have millions of people sitting at, hundreds of millions of people sitting at home going, what am I going to do with my day? Well, you know what? I've always really liked pottery. I'm going to try to sell some of my pots. Or like, I'm, you know, I do business strategy consultancy as a job. Like maybe I can see if I can get one or two clients to just do it on the side. And so you have this massive surge of people looking to freelance. And on top of that, you have all these people coming out of university and younger generations who are not willing to work a nine to five anyway, and are looking for ways to get around that. So you have like the perfect storm of things that was already happening naturally, but has been sped up by maybe five, 10 years. And so for Underpinned, what we're the position we're at now is suddenly investors are looking at us and going, well, you were kind of an interesting proposition before, but now you're like the only people that are three years ahead of everyone else in this race. Um, And so- I kind of hate saying that it's been like a great thing for Underpin, but long term, it'll probably be the the catalyst that 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 makes Underpin a rocket ship faster than it could have been otherwise. Good stuff. Yeah, I'm sure you guys will keep on growing. In terms of the pandemic itself, do you think the government could have done more to support freelancers from your perspective? <laughs> I mean, I mean <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes, they could have. The number, I mean, a huge portion of our time was just spent trying to help people who fell through the cracks and. It's a complicated system, but our tax systems, our welfare systems, our mortgage and financial systems are not set up for self-employment. Um, hilariously, I had to get my mum to be the guarantee, like a guarantee of my flat when I started underpinned or like a year in. And I am the guarantee. Like I'm the person that signs off all of my employees. Like, <laughs> which is, but the, but the point is that, like, particularly from a from an institutional perspective, finance has been built off the back of linear careers. Which definitely one thing COVID has shown are not necessarily more secure than freelance careers. But what ended up happening was the government response for self employed self employed people was we're going to put people into like a series of quite simplified buckets and give you quite a simplified deal. And kind of just say that that covers you and we've done something for you. And what ended up happening was, I mean, I don't, I can't honestly remember the exact statistics because it's a little while since I've been digging into it, but massive numbers of people just completely fell through through the cracks with absolutely no support. And I'm not going to lie, like some of those people, it was the way they were structuring their own tax, which meant that they weren't eligible because they weren't really paying themselves much because of the way they did like lots of interesting things with their tax, which I have, which I have opinions on, but like the vast majority were just people who were not quite in the, didn't quite fit into the right bucket. And what it meant was 
like we were getting messages all the time being like i literally can't pay my rent and i don't know what to do and it's not like i can go out and get a normal job now like i don't know what i'm supposed to do and i think i'm hoping that there was a realization around the importance of supporting this economy because long term it's not going to be about freelance or not freelance it's going to be about supporting skilled workers in in a sustainable and consistent way that allows for people to to be kind of important and active members of the economy and the way that the way that employment is changing is it's not going to be freelance and linear it's going to be flexible in different tax structures but depending on how you work and we need to start taking that quite seriously because there are so many freelancers who fall through the gaps in terms of welfare systems in terms of social support in terms of access to education in terms of access to financial solutions like get buying a house as a freelancer is like <laughs> the biggest ordeal i can't imagine how bad that must be yeah and so like this is just something that people experience across the board and covid was just a really terrible terrible example of how if it comes to an extreme like this there's a huge portion of people that just have absolutely nothing to fall back on and it, it, it's not because of the way they're working it's because of a lack of a systematic format for supporting that way of work let's hope someone from the government's listening to this yeah well we're starting to do more work with the government with the small business commissioner and with bays and i'm really really pushing them but you, i mean you you work in that in that sphere like you know how slow moving these things can be and it's not that yeah. there isn't the right sentiment it's that there are always people who fall off the, off the edge. And so like creating systems that actually work is really complicated. And I think that it's one of those things where technology will be so far ahead of government policy that it'll be a weird kind of system of catching up, especially around kind of tax systems. I want to bring it a bit more positive now. So what was the best thing that's happened to you since starting Underpinned? Or what was the best part of starting the business? Oh my lord! Uh, we used to throw freaking dope ass parties. <laughs> we became famous for our parties. Though we we did like amazing. Uh, that makes it sound like we were super frivolous. We never spent much money on them, but we had this. We had a big warehouse office. We used to throw um, parties where we get all of our community together, and they'd be like networking events, heavily quotation marked. And the reason I say that is that no one wants to actually go to a networking event, or vast majority of people don't. And if you throw a networking event the way people act in them is like horrific. Whereas if you get people from your community to come perform and exhibit and show off what they're doing and you get people to come in and have like, just be together, people build relationships and get work out of them. Like we'd throw a, a party where a drag queen would be performing and 25 people would get a freelance gig off the back of it. And there'd be 200 people there. Like that's, tell me like that doesn't happen at like normal networking events. And no. And uh, and that's kind of a, that, that sentiment of community and engagement and being able to be part of that was absolutely amazing. And it's been super weird because we now do events with way more people than we could ever have done in the flesh. You know, I give lectures to up to 2000 people at a time which is amazing, but I I do really miss that that thing. And like the thing that I love the most about Underpinned, hands down, is the amazing network of people that have come around it. And that's like that's something that is incomparable to anything else I've ever experienced. And what was the biggest challenge to to starting up the business? Because I know you've mentioned financial side of things, taxes. A lot of people will have that as their main gripe, but I don't know if you've had any other challenges. Yeah, it's weird because when I talk to freelancers, like like it's fairly easy to split up their challenges into like quite simple buckets that I can pretty much always help them solve. But as a fast growth startup, the pressures are quite different. And I can, accounting is annoying and legal stuff's annoying and HR can be annoying, but like it's stuff you can learn and just do and it's boring, but you just do it. 
the biggest challenge for me has been catching up with speed. By that, I mean, I started Underpin with little to no knowledge of the startup world. And I had to learn everything very quickly, which is not the issue. The issue was that, if I'm honest, like my biggest regret was taking the first bit of investment that we got. I wish I'd waited three, six months and done all the learning that I needed to do without the money (laughs) and then got the money and been faster at getting to the next stage. Because the biggest challenge when you start something like this is keeping up the momentum and expectation. And as a startup, like whatever it looks like from the outside is a mess on the inside. Like I promise you, even name like the biggest names in in the UK and in Europe, like massive startups, multi-billion dollar companies, it is a mess on the inside because the way that you're growing is so fast and agile and things are always moving. So you need to make sure that your pace keeps up with your access to capital and growth. And that also that keeps up with your growth of your team and that everyone fits together and that, you know, that if a key person leaves at the wrong time, you're not just about to completely collapse because the the marks of a good business are that it's not dependent on any one person, right? Like yeah. that, that it's a business that is sustained. It's a good business, not a good startup, a good business. And the whole thing about a startup is you're trying to get to be a really big, good business as quickly as you possibly can because you couldn't grow like that without access to significant capital. And so the biggest challenge, sorry, this is super convoluted and long-winded, but the biggest challenge for me was how do you balance that taking money, growing and building a good product, which sometimes could take a really long time to do it right, what at the same time without kind of letting one fall. And that's, that's, that's very, very stressful and emotionally turbulent. <laughs> With that initial investment, was there a bit more pressure then to, to deliver something once you'd taken money or... Was it just on your? I never your own felt. Sort of I never felt that pressure. Like, okay. I did, not not initially. I felt a pressure to get more money to sustain the people that I was employing. Yeah. That was my biggest pressure. Like knowing that you're going to run out of money in 24 hours. I can say this now because my team know we're super uh, stable now. But yeah, the first year and a half, I've never said this publicly. We never had more than a month and a half of cash in our bank, ever for 18 months. The emotional stress of going through that process is absolutely bonkers. And even when you see some of these bigger rounds of investment where people get a fair amount of money at the same time, it often comes in like chunks and is split up or is set to KPIs or whatever else. So like that process of starting a startup, which is another reason why I'm saying like taking that money was stressful because I didn't realize how quickly I'd need more money. And so that constant rigmarole of going like, oh, I need to make a plan for 12 months, but I know that I've only got two months. So I need to make a 12 month plan, but I need to hit stuff in two months and the guy will give me money for the next two months. Um, And like, God, I look back at that first year and think like, I learned so much so quickly. And it was, it was, I I don't think it would, it wouldn't be fair to say any money was wasted, but it'd be fair to say like the way the business was built was like it was it was learning as it was being built. And I think that I kind of wish I'd had more hands-on experience from other people in that first year and that was challenging but any i talked to loads of ceos startup ceos and loads of people running businesses and the story always seems like almost exactly the same no matter how experienced they are so i guess it is just something you've got to go through and, and now we're like we're established and like investors are wanting to throw money at us which is a weird weird yeah. turn of events um and it's it's like an it's a it's a very exciting to change but that that pressure of you need to pay your staff who you are, who you love and are your friends 
and you know you might not be able to pay them in 24 hours it's on you to sort that out and yeah that's that's a mad mad feeling <laughs> yeah were you and jack getting any support for or like mentoring or was it all just kind yeah, of so independently trying to as i said earlier one of my biggest kind of drives is criticism and being told you're not good enough and i think like you want to go into building a business you need to take criticism like you are not good at what you do you do what you do and other people are better at it and there's always someone who's better at a part of what you do seek those people out and so when i started underpinned i read everything i could but most importantly i just sought out anyone who would give me advice and i'd sit there quietly and listen i wouldn't take lots of notes because i found i just didn't end up going back through notes i'd ask lots of questions and yeah. so I would sit there and listen and ask questions until I felt like I had a practical knowledge of the conversation. And I think that was like a weird thing that I learned is that you can have a practical knowledge of a concept by questioning the concept consistently until you understand how it works under critique. So like you don't need to necessarily have done some things as long as you question the concept of it with somebody who has done it enough to understand the kind of iterative versions of it. That sounds like a yeah. really weird statement, but so I went and found as many people as I could. So it was talking to other startup CEOs. It was joining groups of people. It was seeking out, asking investors to introduce me to other people in their network, you know, going back to universities that had support, going to my family and be like, do you know anyone? Like I would, I would email people I had no right to email. And I think I was shocked at how many people would reply. If you email yeah. someone and say, Hey, like I'm a huge fan of yours because of X, Y, Z reason. I'd love to have like just 10 minutes to talk to you. They'll give you 15 minutes, half an hour. Like by and large, people will do that. And I know that I had a luxury of being like a a young white man with a relatively posh accent, which helped me open some doors. But at the same time, especially if you live in a metropolitan like London, people want to support people, but people don't get many opportunities to. If you find a way of emailing someone or sending someone a message, by and large, people will give you half an hour at the time. And if they don't, they're probably not worth talking to. So like, see, I just sort of tried to seek that out as much as possible. Okay. Just to delve a little bit more into Underpinned, I know you've got your ultimate guide to freelancing. Is that a course for people that they can join? Yeah. Is there anything else that you guys offer that you'd say is sort of unique to Underpinned? Yeah. So the way that Underpinned works is we have this like content that's just great and free and you can go and check out our magazine. There's loads of cool stuff there. We have this amazing community. But the way that we kind of built Underpin was most software systems require you to already be successful to use them effectively so the whole point of the course which is like an eight-week accelerator program is we give you access to all the software but also this constant hands-on education so throughout this eight weeks you learn everything you need to do to be a freelancer but at the end of the eight weeks you can get asked to switch over to a subscription which everybody ends up doing because like once you've learned how to freelance you want to start freelancing you need all the tools it's all there for you so this that whole system together is really unique and the thing that the accelerator course does for us is it teaches you everything you need to know to be a freelancer, which means you're way more likely to be successful, which means you're way more likely to be a better customer for us. But it also teaches you how to use our software. So by the end of the course, you're also like our ideal user because you know how to use everything within our system. And it's like the system that you've learned how to do it with. So like there are, I mean, selfish is not the right word, but like commercially beneficial reasons for us doing the course that go beyond just like teaching you how to be a good freelancer. But what it does, it creates this really nice ecosystem of, you're in you're part of a freelance community of people who are building successful freelance businesses you have access to all the tools you have access to support and helplines and live workshops and stuff um but most importantly you have access to just everything you need in one place and that's one of the most annoying things about being a freelancer is like having to seek out advice from different people and like different tools to do different things like just do everything here from insurance and accounting to 
to portfolio development and lead generation like sorted out in terms of things that we're doing as we go forward like realistically from now it's just like incrementally getting better and better and better at the stuff that we do um it was a big system to build and it's taken us pretty much until now to like complete the core components of the system it was a big big project um but now it's there and it's working and people are loving it it's about just like iteratively improving it in line with what people want to do and how people use it okay um and do you have any exclusive announcements or anything else you can talk about with the future plans for underpinned yeah i mean there's some pretty exciting stuff we're doing in terms of the uk we're now like really starting to roll out more of our content stuff. so we've been quite london focused we started to roll out across the uk we're now going like fully uk like we're going to go all across the, the nation we're going to get hundreds of thousands of people involved uh the course has like been relaunched and there's a big relaunch in september um, you can buy the course at the moment but lots of like iterative stuff some amazing cool partnerships that i just can't talk about but i can no tell you that like so many universities in the UK will be embedding underpinned in their systems and helping us access people before they even make the leap to do freelancing, uh, which I'm excited about. Um, we're also developing a lot of systems for working with more established freelancers so people we can carry on helping people for a lot longer and give people like a more wider and a, a wider and kind of more in-depth support system. Um, and yeah, I, think, I mean, like there's just lots of, there's, I mean, I guess the, the other big thing is we're starting, we've now got our first customers in Europe and the US um and we're going to be in the new year is really when that's going to start that drive's going to start but we're now starting to like grow globally which is pretty exciting sounds amazing europe and usa domination for 2022 fingers crossed yeah let's do it um i read something online about you being involved in a 30 hour rugby game so was that one of the most physically demanding things you've ever done that was horrible <laughs> but you know what made it even worse was it was 31 and a half hours in the end it was the longest full contact rugby game. for guinness world record book records is raising for an amazing charity school of hard knocks who i was a massive supporter of they do amazing things for people and i highly recommend you check them out they're really fantastic and the guy who runs it uh worked his office was opposite our first office and we used to chat all the time i said i played rugby at school didn't play anymore um and he's like oh we're doing this thing i was like yeah yeah sure sure Oh my God, like 31 and a half hours. And because I was being an arrogant little prick, they basically didn't give me any breaks. I had two, I had an hour and a half off for nap the whole 31 and a half hours because oh it was rolling subs. And the worst bit was just like, during the first day, fun, fairly fine. Nighttime, it's cold. Yeah. It's 30 degrees. It was 30 degrees. It was the middle of the summer, 30 degrees in the day. And it was like cold, 14, 15 degrees at night. Freezing cold, your muscles seize up and you're just trying to keep oh, moving. Fuck. And then the next day, I'm like strapped up. I'm basically taped together at this point. The next day comes and the people that were supposed to be attaching trackers to us so they could track how much we move, all the stats for it, for all the publicity, uh, got the day wrong. So they turned up like four hours before it finished. So four hours before it finished, someone calls me over. They're like, hey, hey, like you still look a little bit energetic. We're going to strap a tracker to you. Can you run as fast as you can for the next four hours so that we can get some impressive stats? So then for the last four hours, I'm like sprinting Bombing as much about. as possible, absolutely destroying my body. And then, uh, and I thought I was fine, thought I was fine, got into the car and passed out for like a day and a half. <laughs> Did your ballet practice kind of prepare you for that in any way or was it completely? It probably did the opposite. <laughs> it's like, I don't know. Like, I feel like uh, it, it was just one of those things of just like grit your teeth, get it done. Like you can't ever let yourself think it's okay to stop. Otherwise you just stop. Yeah. 
And so you just have to be like, whatever happens, however, however terrible I feel, I just got to keep keep going, and like I can do that. And I'm I'm I guess I'm quite good, like just getting my head down and just getting stuff done. So it was just like, don't care who's around me, don't care what's happening, keep smiling, keep being cheerful to everyone around you, and just keep going. Um, and actually, you know what? I would definitely not do it again. But uh, <laughs> you're glad you did. But I yeah, I'm really glad I did it. Cool. That sounds like a good uh, cause as well. So I'll check out School of Hard Knocks. Um, and anyone listening, yeah, give do. them give them a google and see what they're all about um i know you're also an ally to the lgbtqia plus community and you've shared a couple of images in sort of typically female clothing on linkedin and some other platforms what were some of the responses you got from putting those posts on linkedin wearing skirts and dresses was it mostly positive it was actually overwhelmingly positive which is really interesting because i've seen a lot of people post i've seen lots of women post similar kinds of inclusive um statements around promoting inclusivity which have seen a lot of i mean just angry men mostly being kind of like aggressive and like negative and i really didn't get that i think i got one very well written quite negative comment and i was so shocked i got hundreds and thousands and thousands of people supporting yeah um hundreds and hundreds of people commenting really beautiful supportive comments and very little negativity and i was shocked because i'd seen so much of this like people post about stuff all the time but i've largely seen it posted by women or people who are like very visually obviously part of the lgbtq plus community and i hadn't really seen i'd never really seen a white man post anything about it to be totally honest except for like the odd off the cuff like i believe in inclusion and i'd seen so much negativity and so i was really expecting to get a lot of that and I didn't. And I think I I did think about what I was writing quite a lot because I think the last thing I would ever want to be is prescriptive. I think it's really yeah. easy to say like, it must be so hard for you. And I understand how hard it is to be like, no, you fucking don't. Like, you don't have a clue. And I know I don't have a clue. Like, and that's okay. That's okay. That doesn't mean I can't be an ally, but I can't pretend to have a clue about what that feels like. And so it was very much about like, what I'm trying to do with this, this piece is like, yeah, I might wear crazy clothing and do lots of weird things and be part of like lots of weird communities and I'm very open but this was really about saying actually if I look at what I have done in my life almost everything I've ever done has been made easier by who I am and like so one of the core focuses of the whole thing was when I walk into a room I feel confident people think I know what I'm doing like people look at me and go that do and like a lot a lot of even I'm I've had investors say to me, you remind me of you. And I bear in mind, by and large, the people that can give you significant financial support are people who got their money in the 70s, 80s, and 90s who are white men. Yeah. Like, so if you don't, if they if they can't look at you and go, you remind me of you, like that's a that's a real issue in terms of access. So the 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 purpose behind the campaign was really clearly about saying, recognizing how much easier it might be. And therefore, how different it could be in different circumstances without being prescriptive. And so I did put a lot of effort into thinking about how it was written and why it was written and what the purpose of it was. But I wasn't expecting it to be received so well. Like I really thought people would be, there would be a lot more negativity. And I don't know where all those white men went. (laughs) (laughs) They they disappeared real quick when I posted. Like I didn't see any, I really, like I said, one very well written comment that was pretty negative, but everything else was positive. And it, it what really struck me was you know I, I work in a lot of a big part of what I do is around inclusion and like I'm, I'm really really passionate about it and I've realized that even if I'm not the best spokesperson for it because of who I am 
I am one of the only people that when I talk about it receives largely positive comments. Like when I talk to investors about being a bit of a weird dude and being involved in all these different weird things and, and being part of different communities and, and being accepting of communities, their response, no matter how conservative they are, seems to always be, that's pretty cool. Yeah. But that's not their response of people that they might typically see in those places. And so, um, or be part of different cultures or be part of different ethnicities or be part of different age groups or whatever else it is. And so it's a really weird thing where I feel like I have quite a cool opportunity to talk to people who actually listen to me and don't just turn around and say shitty things. And so I'm really excited about using the platform that Underpin's building to, to build that kind of inclusion. And like Underpin is like one of the big things about Underpin for me is freelancing offers a really unique ability to have a work first format for hiring. In other words, like most linear employment is a people first format. You hire the person, not their work yeah. largely. Whereas with freelancer, you get the opportunity to hire the work before you hire the person. You might find out the person's fantastic and you continue to work with them, but it's largely built around the work. And so there's such an opportunity there to create an inclusive platform for people to, from any background, from any culture, from any different position to be involved in things. And I think that that's really cool. But at the same time, the little biases, the little uses of language, the little ways people react that are so ingrained in how we look at people and talk and interact are massive. And I think that having an ability to talk about things that most people don't or won't or can't, or if they do are shut down, talk about in a way that people actually listen to is a really cool opportunity that I'd like to take advantage of. Yeah, I thought it was a really strong campaign and I'm really, really well received. I was just, yeah, hoping you didn't receive any negativity and it's good to know that it was was limited. And yeah, it's quite interesting what you said about freelancers being more judged on what they can do rather than who they are. And you don't really get people kind of judging them on face value, I guess, with with freelancing, because if you're good at what you do, then it doesn't matter what you look like, what you're into or where you're from. So yeah, I think that's a really good takeaway from from this discussion in terms of freelancing itself what would you say to someone who is working a nine-to-five at the moment and considering going freelance join underpin i think that like i mean honestly come do our course or come to one of our welcome workshops or like check out check you know send us an email info underpin.com but the, the best bits of advice i was ever given and the best bit of advice you can be given if you're thinking about freelancing is to remember that you're not a profession anymore when you work in nine to five linear employment, you think about yourself in terms of your job title. I'm a graphic designer, I'm a consultant, I'm a PR specialist, whatever it is. When you're a freelancer, you're a business that does that thing. And your success won't be driven by how good you are at that thing. Your success will be driven by how you build a business around that thing you do. Because as a freelancer, you're communicating, you're finding out what problems you can solve for businesses, you're showing the businesses how you're going to solve those problems. So it's not to say the quality of your work isn't important <laughs> to be a directly opposing what I previously said. <laughs> but what I what I mean by that is who you are as a freelancer, your work is not just your craft. Your work is your business and your craft is at the heart of that. But the best way of thinking about that is your craft is a toolkit to solve problems for clients and customers. Learn how to communicate how that toolkit can solve those problems and you will build a bang bang freelance business. And if you want help doing that, underpinned is here. There you go, people. I always like to ask all my guests for any books, films, TV shows or podcasts you'd recommend. So they can be business related or just anything you've enjoyed recently. Um, but do you have any that you've... Yeah, 
uh laura bates everyday sexism is like a life-changing book definitely read it i would highly recommend reading good strategy bad strategy the author has eluded me (sighs) hard thing about hard things is also brilliant from a startup perspective um you kind of have to read the lean startup eric reese who actually met recently which was pretty exciting um that's like kind of the holy grail of, of startup. You can kind of ignore parts of it, but like the core concepts there are like how you build a startup. Um, is there anything else I've read recently that I've really enjoyed? I recently just finished Shantaram, which is like a fiction. I've read that. Uh, which I, I don't read a lot of books, but I, I love that book actually. I mean, yeah, I really enjoyed it. I could see um, it as a film, but it would be a really long film. It would be a long and super dark film yeah. as well, but it would be it would be really good. I had to like stop a number of times because it's got a bit dark, but it's so beautifully written and like the descriptions are amazing. The only thing that faulted me was I didn't think the dialogue was particularly strong, but like, and I thought, I always felt like it didn't feel as natural as it should yeah. have, but like, but the, the book is beautiful. The story is amazing. And I, I absolutely loved it. Um, and it's something that I finished quite recently. Yeah, those are, I think those are some solid recommendations. Okay. Any films, TV shows? Uh, to be honest, me and my girlfriend are like going back through like old TV shows. So I've been watching like Coupling and Black Books okay, yeah. and The Fast Show. <laughs> um, I don't know what I've been watching. I mean, Hannibal, which is, uh, I think it's a Netflix. I don't know what it was originally, but I think it's on Netflix and Amazon Prime. Like, that's one of my favorite TV shows ever. Although not as good rewatching. Okay. Banging the first time, but you start to see all the cracks when you watch the second time. Um, and then I'm a big fan of like the cartoons, like Archer, Rick and Morty. Yeah, same. Stuff. <laughs> yeah, like, I feel like most people are now. Rick and Morty is like a ubiquitously loved TV show. It is. Even if you um, don't like cartoons, I think people can watch it and still get a laugh yeah. out of it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And then actually, uh, it's always sunny in Philadelphia. It's probably like it's. They're all just such horrible people in it, but it's just one of the funniest TV shows I think ever. Okay. Is there anyone you want to shout out in your team or people that have helped you get to where you are now? I know you said you got a sort of a thirty strong team, so maybe not everyone. But if there's anyone that springs to mind, there are a lot of people. I mean, everyone. In, one of the things that I love about Underpin is that we've had like a we've made a real effort to hire people and include them and my business partner is amazing at nurturing talent but i guess like particularly big shout out to Ciprian, our cto jorge our cpo and Leia, our cmo um because like the five of us like without those four like i'd be completely lost and they are all absolute stallions of their work and just like their input passion and genuine love for what we're doing is constantly inspiring and when i turn up at a monday morning meeting and just see that everyone is excited about doing stuff in the week how, like how can you not be enthused <laughs> about running a company when that happens and i think that's largely down to those four people my business partner being the fourth giving people that really clear direction on how to build something amazing and i think like there are lots of people externally who have supported and advised me and, and helped underpin in loads of different ways right now like those four people are the backbone of what underpin is that's brilliant we're recording this on a monday and you look very infused so i'm definitely definitely <laughs> believing what you're saying <laughs> thank you <laughs> and where can people find you where can they find underpinned if they're looking to get more information or just want to have a chat yeah well under if you type underpinned into google you will find us immediately uh check our instagram which got linked to lots of our content um but to be honest, like if you are, you're sitting there and you're like, I want to start freelancing or I want to talk to Albert of the team or I just want to hear more, we personally respond to everything. So info at underpin.com, send us an email, you will get a response from a lovely person, probably a lovely young woman called Becky. 
I think those are the main questions from me. Did you have any questions you wanted to ask me at all? Not really. I mean, I'm interested more broadly about your impetus to sign this. Like I read a bit, bit on your background and, and kind of where you came from and, and working in PR in-house. Like, like, what was the thing behind the podcast? Because it's quite a niche set of groups. And like, what started that? I think from my perspective, it was just the fact I, I knew a load of people who had started their own businesses, but some of whom I, I wasn't that in touch with or I hadn't spoken to for a little while and wanted to learn a bit more. And I think personally really want to get to know what people are up to and what makes them tick that's such a cool impetus for doing that i feel like creating excuses to talk to the people that you want to learn from is like the best the best thing to do i love putting people in touch with other people yeah i mean i really enjoy the narrative and like in-depthness of the questions like there's a clear like theme through i guess like your pr background <laughs> yeah. being strong and like making sure it's like a really clear story as you go through it but that's quite rare in doing podcasts it's really enjoyable to, to, to answer those questions well, cool. I mean, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure to chat to you. Thanks for coming on, Albert. If you're a freelancer or you're planning to go freelance and you like the sound of Underpinned, you can sign up to their course, The Ultimate Guide to Freelancing, and get 25% off with the discount code HUSTLEUP25. For more details and a link to the course, just check out the show's description. That's the end of another Hustle Up podcast. Episodes are recorded and produced by me, Josh Burrell, and music is courtesy of Hagen, spelled H-A-G-A-N, on Instagram at Hagen underscore UK. You can listen on all music and podcast platforms, and please like or subscribe to check out future episodes. Follow at Hustle Up podcast on Instagram, and thanks especially to Lucy Werner from The Wern for introducing me to Albert. And her second book, Brand Yourself, is out now with her co-founder, creative director and husband, Adrian Chatelet.